Well, let's uh, look at Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, and break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and with the sound of melody, with trumpets and with the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Amen. Amen. Now, let's, uh, I want to start tonight by taking up uh, a question that was raised in Sunday school. And I had some answer for it, but wasn't certain it was actually complete. And uh, Jim Rocker actually was, I think, the one who raised the question. And I don't see Jim here, but uh, we'll put it on the CD and, and he can get it off the website. But the, the question uh, had to do, we were talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that led into a broader discussion of the Trinity. I listened to, a couple of weeks ago, an interesting interview with uh, Dr. Carl Truman, professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, also a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He had a very um, provocative statement in that interview, in that it was his belief that the way uh, often evangelicals conceive of God and even sometimes the way that uh, God is worshipped, uh, prayed to, preached, uh, that we are often practical Unitarians. It was a very provocative comment, I thought. And uh, we had a discussion about the importance of maintaining the, the divinity of the Holy Spirit in his ministry and also the divinity, the full divine nature of Jesus Christ, the God-man with two natures, fully God, truly man, along with that of the Father. Uh, because if the, uh, we lapse in our understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, especially with respect to his divine nature, then, well, really with respect to both natures, but certainly with respect to the divine nature, then the Trinity then collapses. And Uh, I said this is of particular importance to us because in the history of our own country that where Calvinists uh, did flourish uh, for a season, particularly, for example, in New England, it did give way later to Unitarianism. And so the question was raised in Sunday school, why did this happen? And I did have some answers, uh, but I wasn't quite satisfied uh, having been unprepared for that question. So I did talk to John Meather who is the historian for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church this afternoon, and I told him about the Sunday school and asked him this question. So let me give you a little bit more information here uh, about this. He said, first of all, there may be a variety of answers that you would get to that question. Why did Unitarianism replace uh, Calvinism in uh, New England and and in sometimes the mid-Atlantic states? Uh, Some... Uh, say that it it was an excessive reaction to the emotionalism of the Great Awakening, that uh, the pendulum had swung heavily uh, 
in the camps of some who were anti-revivalists who in turn turned towards an overly rationalistic, anti-supernatural view of religion. And men such as Charles Chauncey uh, helped lead the charge. You also had developments at Harvard, which in 1805 hired its first Unitarian professor named Henry Ware, who became a professor of divinity at Harvard. So as early as 1805, Harvard already went on record as a willingness to hire a Unitarian on their faculty and the faculty of divinity at that. It was by 1850 that historians said that Unitarianism at Harvard had become so prevalent it was known as, a Uni- it was known as the Unitarian Vatican by 1850, so 45 years later. Uh, some would look at the innovations uh, by the descendants of, uh, theological descendants of Jonathan Edwards as helping to lead down there, uh, the importation of philosophical notions uh, at Harvard, particularly the influence of German scholarship being brought over. Uh, also important and cannot be left out, Meether said, was the development of Arminianism as a stepping stone, as a stage of development to Unitarianism. It's not as though they went from uh, believing the Westminster Standards directly into Unitarianism, but there were stages and developments. And one of those stages was the loss of confidence in the sovereignty of God. Also, an important doctrine that was beginning to be undermined was that of what we would call total depravity, or R.C. Sproul likes to call it radical depravity. The idea that the fall has so affected man that man is dead in his sins and trespasses. Boys and girls, that's what we believe here at this church. We believe that the fall of our first parents was so egregious, what they did in violating the covenant with God, it had tremendous consequences for them and all their descendants, all of us. And that is that we were born into sin and that we were slaves to sin by nature and that there was no inherent goodness left in any aspect of our being. Our faculties were all tainted, much like if I put poison into this glass of water. It's not as though I could say, well, I think this side of the glass is safe to drink. The poison worked its way throughout the glass, and, it, and so the fall worked its way throughout our entire humanity, was affected, our emotional life. Uh, our reasoning, our wills, everything about us was corrupted by the fall so that nobody in and of themselves would choose Jesus Christ. That's what we believe that the Bible teaches, uh, that we believe that it is only a work of sovereign grace by the power of the Holy Spirit that can regenerate a man or a woman or a boy or a girl and give them faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring them to a point of repentance. Well, this had been undermined and rejected. And so uh, many began to believe, such as Ralph Waldo Emerson in 1830. Uh, he dismisses Christianity in a famous lecture that he gave at Harvard uh, that, that uh, we should be poets, not priests, he said. And that there was this uh, righteousness and ability to perceive truth within ourselves and that there was the indwelling God within each person. And of course, you had the whole transcendental movement uh, going along with Emerson there. And then one more thing, and then I'll move on, um, and that was polity. 
Now, polity in itself, uh, Meeser points out, is only as good as the officers who enforce it. Polity is only as good as officers who enforce it. So you can't just say, well, if we have this system of church government, we'll be safe from all error. Okay? It's only as good as the uh, clay pots, who are called elders, are at being faithful to God and God's grace. But, nevertheless, New England had a congregational polity. They did not have a Presbyterian system of government. And what that means, when you have a congregational system of government, there is no court higher than the local congregation to deal with an issue. And so if there is sin in a particular church, if that church does not deal with it, there is nothing the other congregational churches can do about it. Whereas in our system of government, if a problem (coughs) does arise with a particular minister or a particular congregation, in our system of government, uh, that there are other uh, churches that, that, which come together to form a presbytery that do have the capability of uh, enforcing discipline. So there also was a, another problem that had these churches had what we believe a biblical connectedness, which I think we see in the book of Acts. Remember in Acts 15, the, the great division that arose on the issue of justification that regarding Gentiles. Do Gentiles, are they justified by faith alone or are they justified by faith in Jesus Christ plus uh, obedience to certain ceremonial laws, including circumcision? When this was debated and the church found in favor of justification by faith alone, it enforced it. It said, here it is, and here's the letter, and this letter goes out to all the churches. But in a congregational system, which they did have in New England, Uh, There was no uh, ability to stop that. So I thought that would be helpful and a uh, fuller explanation uh, to that question. Now, let's turn our attention to uh, Psalm 98. Psalm 98. Now, this is one of the most popular psalms, I think, that is uh, sung, certainly by our congregation. It's got to be probably one of the top five. If I were to ask and survey, what are your favorite psalms that you like to sing? The tune, uh, Desert, in common meter, probably is one of the reasons for that. But uh, certainly the substance of this psalm has got to be an important part. And by the way, I think it shows the importance of continuing in the church to write new tunes. Uh, Think about the psalms that get neglected in our Psalter simply because, well, we're not really crazy about that tune. But, you know, and, and then I think there's evidence why we don't necessarily have to reinvent the whole wheel, but if certain tunes no longer seem to speak to the church, and therefore certain portions of the Word of God are being neglected uh, because of that, it shows the ongoing need to be writing new tunes. So I do believe that uh, we should be engaged in that process. Also, this psalm historically is of great importance because of Isaac Watts. Probably the most uh, joyful Christmas hymn is what? Joy to the world, right. And joy to the world, if you look at the uh, lines in that hymn or can remember them, uh, you will note that Isaac Watts borrowed from Psalm 98 for that hymn. So uh, I want to divide this psalm into three parts. 
for our consideration tonight. Now, there are some other themes that I think are in this psalm that aren't really brought out by these three divisions, but these three divisions are very helpful. I got them from James Montgomery Boyce, the former minister at 10th Presbyterian Church. He got them from John Stott. So we ought to credit Stott for this division of these psalms. But once, you, once I saw it, once I read that line in the commentary and went back and looked at the Bible, I was like, man, he's right. So look at these three and see if you don't say, yeah, this is a good way to divide the psalm. Verses 1 through 3, we see God as Savior. God as Savior. Uh, we, we see that with regard to the references of salvation. His right hand, his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. God is Savior. And then also verse 3b, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. God the Savior again. And then the second division, verses 4 through 6, God the King. God the King. We see that in 6b, with trumpets and the sound of the horn shout joyfully before the King. And then finally, verses 7 to 9, God the Judge. God the Judge. And you can see that in verse 9. Before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So God the Savior, God the King, and God the Judge. Isn't that a nice tripart division there? I think so. Let's go with it. All right, let's talk about God the Savior. And, and I also want to touch on some what I think are some other themes that really you find in all three sections, particularly the theme of joy in here as well. And I'll touch on that as well. But God the Savior, verses 1 to 3. Now, in verse 1, you'll note there is that verse which we find in other psalms. Uh, we saw it in verse 96, Psalm 96 rather. And that is, O sing to the Lord a new song. And we've talked about what that means, boys and girls. You remember how I said to you that the reason the psalmist calls us to sing a new song is why? Because God has done a new work. And so these psalms were often composed in a particular historical context in which the people of God were to celebrate. And I think also it is important for us to sing. Remember how I told you that uh, the numerically one of the uh, commands that we see more than any other command is to sing. Now, I'm not saying that's the most important command. Jesus told us the greatest commandment in the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But numerically, the command to sing is found more often than other commandments, other, other exhortations in the Bible. And so I hope that I can impress upon this again to you tonight. Please sing. Please sing at home. Please sing individually in your, in your private worship. Please sing in your family worship. Please sing in the church. Uh, most importantly, corporately here when we gather together that we, that we should come and, and sing. Singing is an act of worship. It is an act of lifting up our, not only our voice, but our heart with our voice to the throne of God above. It is a particular form of praise. And it is a particular form of petition. We see that the Psalms, in particular, not only praise God, but they seek the Lord for blessing, to seek the Lord for deliverance from enemies and, and things like that. So please uh, sing. How many times have you personally been encouraged 
because you heard somebody or you overheard somebody singing to the Lord. I know I have. I can think of times where I heard somebody singing to the Lord and they didn't know I was in the building or something like that. Not necessarily here, but you know, I can, I can remember one of my professors singing in his office uh, and I was downstairs and, and, and how that just encouraged me. Here's somebody who's singing to the Lord. And I felt lifted up uh, by that. I once uh, saw a sermon, a video of a sermon uh, that was preached. And he said that uh, one of the reasons he came to faith in Jesus Christ is he had this hallmate who was always singing uh, this one hymn over and over and over again. And at the time, he, he got weary of it. But that was the means that God eventually used to convert him to Christ, to bring him to faith, uh, was this singing of the uh, of the singing unto the Lord. So if the Lord says it once, it's important, but if he says it twice, three times, uh, 40 times, it's very important. All right, I want to move on. Why? Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. And this is the work of salvation. Remember, we're dealing with God, the Savior here. He has done wonderful things, and salvation is wonderful. Salvation, there is nothing more wonderful than the salvation of men in the gospel. There is, there is no subject more holy, more divine, uh, nothing that can stretch your mind more than the contemplation of God and who he is and what he has done. And he has done things that bring awe. What has he done, especially in the cross? Let me give you, a, I, I wrote down seven things, just boom, 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 without spending too much time even thinking about it. Let me give you seven things that I think the Lord has done that are wonderful in the cross of Jesus Christ. Number one, he's accomplished your salvation. Your, your salvation, Jesus said on the cross with his last breath, it is finished. He has completed, he has done everything to secure the salvation of his people in that death. Number two, what Christ has done in the cross is wonderful because he has propitiated the wrath of God. The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day and because we by nature are sinners, therefore God has been angry with all men everywhere. But Jesus Christ, by what he has done on that cross, he has propitiated the wrath of God. And what that means is he has satisfied the justice of God, the wrath of God. God no longer, if you are in Jesus Christ tonight, God no longer looks judicially at you as one who is under condemnation. That's why Romans chapter 8 says there is now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus because judicially what Jesus did on the cross has satisfied God. All right. Uh, the next one, and I said seven. I'm going to give you six here. Vindicated the justice of God. Vindicated the justice of God. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is what Paul says in Romans, that the cross of Jesus Christ is wondrous because God is seen, Paul says, not only as justifier of unrighteous men, he declares them righteous who are inherently unrighteous, but he is also just in doing so because Jesus paid that penalty. So he is just and righteous and yet the justifier. All right, n next one. Uh, Christ by what he has done at the cross and by virtue of his resurrection, he is vindicated in his righteousness. Remember, he, the Bible teaches that by raising Jesus from the dead, Jesus' 
perfect humanity has been vindicated. Jesus Christ, who inherently was righteous, inherently innocent of all wrongdoing, by his resurrection, he is vindicated that the reason he died and suffered the wrath of God was not for his own sins. Cursed is the man who hangs on the tree, the Bible said. But he didn't, Jesus did not hang there for his sins. He hung there for our sins. So God raises Jesus up from the dead and vindicates that indeed Jesus is righteous. And Jesus is declared righteous at the resurrection. Next one, Christ is raised also for our justification. We are justified when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Paul says this in Romans. That is, he declares you righteous, not for the works you've done, but for what Jesus has done on your behalf. And then lastly, the God our Savior, his works are wondrous because we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Even though we are still here, even though you and I are still imperfect and sinners, nevertheless, you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Though you go undergo humiliation in this life and you carry your cross and you fall after Jesus, the Bible says you're seated with Christ. You're in union with Christ. It's a wondrous mystery there. Jesus is our head. We are the body. I've got to keep moving. Look at verse 2. The Lord has made, his, uh, made known His salvation. This is all under the heading God is Savior. And He has revealed His righteousness in sight of the nations. So another thing we see is God is the Savior of the world. God is Savior of the world. This salvation is no longer hidden in Israel, but it has been made known to the nations. I believe that the psalmists, as well as the prophets, were looking ahead to a gospel age. That They wrote things, they spoke things of which they did not fully understand, and I believe that's true even of this psalm. That they did not fully comprehend what this meant, that the salvation was revealed to the nations. Now they probably thought that the nations would come to Jerusalem. But, and that is true. The nations come to Zion. But how do they come? They come by the gospel going out. They come, as Paul said, how shall they be saved except a preacher be sent? How shall they hear except there be a preacher? Blessed are the feet of them that bring good news. So we see here God is a Savior and he has given us the great commission to bring the gospel worldwide. I want you to look with me also uh, to verse 3. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Again, I think you see a worldwide implication of the gospel. And I think there's reason to be hopeful uh, in, in missionary work and evangelistic work. Because I think... Uh, the scope of the gospel is very wide. Very wide. His mercy is wide. All right, so that is God the Savior. Now let's look at God the King, verses 4 through 6. God the King. This is a uh, theme that you find uh, not only in the Psalms, you find it in the prophets. This is why God gave his people a king. Uh, he raised up David, then Solomon, and their descendants. It was all to typify the coming of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we see that anticipated as well in this psalm, you see the, the joyful singing, the praising of God on the musical instruments. But look at verse 6. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. So that we see Jehovah 
is a king. Now, this is very significant when you get to the end of the Gospels. Why? Because this question uh, was before Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? You know, do you are you do you claim to be a king? And Jesus said, "It is as you say. It is." He affirmed that he is the king of God's people. He was king of Israel. And what do, what do we learn by that? Well, by that we learn he was making himself equal with God, because who does who is the king? The Lord Jehovah. And we see that Jesus is both God and man. And he is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament kings. This is why the Gospels trace their lineage back in Matthew and Luke to show you that Jesus is the son of David. Look at Psalm 110. We see how Psalm 110 anticipated a kingship that would be given to the son of David. Look at verse 1, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch out, excuse me, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Now, of course, Jesus brings this up, doesn't he? he, He asked the question, what did David mean when, verse 1, David wrote, The Lord, Jehovah, said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my Adonai, Now, David is king when he writes this. Now, we know who David's Yahweh was, right? The Lord God Almighty. The Lord God Almighty says to my Adonai, and you're like, David, who's your Adonai? You're the king. You're the the one who's got the most authority and the power in all of Israel. What do you mean that Jehovah... God says to your Adonai, who's your Adonai, David? And isn't that the point that Jesus makes in his earthly ministry? And he asks them this question, who is he talking about? And why did Jesus ask that question? Because he wanted him to answer the Messiah. And because Jesus was that Messiah. He was that Adonai. He was that Lord to whom David was looking forward to. Now, in that same psalm, you have the promise. Great promise. Uh, that is given. Sit at my right hand. So David's Adonai was going to sit at the right hand of God until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we know what the New Testament says about that part of that verse. That Jesus Christ, by virtue of his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension. Now, I think we don't give enough emphasis to the ascension of Christ. We hear a lot about the cross, and we should, and we hear a lot about resurrection, and we should. We probably don't hear as much about the ascension. The ascension is critical, boys and girls. Because why? Because this is where Jesus takes up his throne. This is where Jesus gets his kingship. This is where the Father gives Jesus the kingdom. This is what Daniel saw in his vision when he said, I looked and behold, one was coming in the, in the clouds and he came up, not down in the clouds. He came up to the Holy One. He came up to the Father and the Father gave him what? A dominion that encompassed the whole world. The ascension of Jesus Christ is, is very important to, to appreciate because that's where Jesus Christ becomes the king. That's where he sits at the right hand of the Father. That's where he reigns 
with the Father, with God Almighty, sitting at the right hand of God Almighty, means that he, he has all the authority in heaven and on earth. Isn't that what he said before the Great Commission, before his ascension? All authority on heaven and in, on, in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. This is right before the ascension. And now he takes his seat, he takes his throne, and what does he do in response to taking his throne? What, do they, what does the royal family in England do when they have a coronation? What do they do? I, almost none of us can remember because it's been so long. But, uh, but they have a huge party. Okay? They have a huge celebration. And what do we find in Acts chapter 2? That when Jesus Christ sat upon the throne, he said, I want you to go to Jerusalem because I am going to what? As king over my people now, as king of the Jews, as king over Israel, both old covenant and the new covenant now. Remember, he's going to include the Gentiles into his kingdom. I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit on the church. And what's going to happen? The gospel is going to go to the nations. Go back to Psalm 98 now and see if that is not what this psalm anticipates. It says, sing or shout joyfully to the Lord. What? All the earth. All the earth. Break forth and sing for joy. Sing praises. Why? Because there's a coronation taking place. Because Christ is king. And he's taken his throne. And he's about to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. And he's about to spread the gospel. And he's about to take those enemies. And he's going to convert many of them. He's going to subdue them. He's going to capture them. He's going to make them bend the knee and confess him as Lord. And that those who won't confess him as Lord in this life will confess him as Lord in the judgment that come. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself because that's part three. But there's worship taking place because he's king. So when we come together as a church, boys and girls, remember that Jesus is exalted. Jesus is king. Jesus is holy and he is lifted up. So when you come together, you know, we're not just coming together to just sing a couple songs like you, you would you know, somewhere in, in a civic club or something or in the, just a chorale group. Well, what are we doing? We're lifting up our voices to the king. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. Look at Revelation 4 and 5 sometime in your Bible and, and, and see what they do. They bow. You know, the, the verb in Hebrew to worship really means to prostrate yourself. It's a very physical verb. It means to lay out yourself. Um, and, and, and the idea is to acknowledge the supremacy the glory, the majesty of the one that is being worshipped, of God Almighty, of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ who sits at his right hand. And what do we find? We find this worship taking place. The elders are what? They're prostrated before the throne. There's the throne. And the Almighty God on that great white throne. And there's the Lamb of God, John tells us in the book of Revelation, before the throne, at the right hand of the Father. They, and the worship is given. If you look at the content of the singing, you'll note that the lyrics of the songs that they sing, they praise the Father and they praise the Son. They show the divinity of the Father and the full divinity of Jesus Christ as King. 
Well, let me uh, move on to the third and final point. God the judge. We've seen God as Savior in the first section. God the king in the second section. And finally, God the judge. The Lord God Almighty is a righteous judge. The Bible tells us that righteousness is the very foundation of his throne. And uh, God will render perfect righteous judgments in the earth. Now, he's going to make certain as a righteous judge that every violation of his law, every violation of his commandments, every violation, every sin of omission, every sin of commission, every sin uh, in our thinking, every sin in our words, every sin in our actions, every sin in the history of mankind is going to be accounted for before this righteous judge. You know, people complain, there is no justice in the earth. There's no justice in the world. Now, there is some justice. Sometimes God brings about justice in the earth and he uses various instruments to do so. But we should also note that the kingdom of Christ is not here fully yet. It is here, but it has not yet been consummated. And when the last of God's elect will be brought savingly into the church, God will send Jesus Christ back and he will come back in power and glory as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and as a righteous judge, and he will divide humanity. He will raise the dead, tell the dead to come forth. He will raise the dead and he will separate humanity between the righteous and the wicked. Now the righteous, by what I mean by righteous, are all those who trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation and as their king. Note that you must receive, if you want to stand before Christ the judge, safely on the last day, this is what you need. You need to trust Jesus as your Savior, verses 1 through 3, and you need to trust Jesus as your Lord, verses 4 through 6. Many churches teach you just need Jesus as your Savior. Lordship can wait. Lordship can come later. But that is a false presentation of the gospel. A person who is truly converted, truly saved, who has true, genuine faith, will bear that faith out in works. James said, faith without works is dead. Jesus as Savior, but not Lord, is dead. If you have Jesus only as your Savior, you do not have Jesus. You have an idol. You must have Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. And Jesus' lordship is easy, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. He is not a hard man. And so don't hear me say, when I talk that you must submit to the lordship of Jesus, don't hear me say that he's some kind of hard man. He is not. He is, he is a gracious Savior. He is a gracious Lord. He is meek. He is mild. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And you can put your full confidence in him. And, but Jesus does say, if you love me as Savior, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. You must obey me. You must have me as Lord. You may not say, I raised my hand. I prayed a prayer after the minister. I walked an aisle and therefore, no matter what I do, I am saved. No, 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 no. That is preached throughout the South and it is wrong, it is wrong, it is wrong, it is wrong, it is wrong. Jesus must be Lord as well as Savior. There must be repentance and faith. 
Now you say, is that a works righteous religion? No, absolutely not. We believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It has nothing to do with my works. But the works have to be there to testify to saving faith. That's what the book of James is about. But the instrument of my salvation is faith alone, not my works. Faith alone in Jesus alone is the basis of my salvation. Now, let me get back. Because we're all going to stand. The Bible says it is appointed unto a man once to die and then comes what? The judgment. We must all stand before our Creator. We must all stand before the God-man Jesus Christ. And here is how everyone will stand. One of two ways. The righteous will stand before Christ in Christ's righteousness. Because of their genuine faith, proven by their works, their genuine faith in Jesus Christ, the merits of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the deeds of Christ, the holiness of Christ, is fully imputed and declared to them. It is transferred to them and they stand in blameless white garments. That's a poetic way of saying they stand in the righteousness of God before their judge. The reason that you as a sinner can stand before a holy God is because you stand not in your righteousness. It's because you stand in somebody else's righteousness. You stand in Jesus' righteousness if you stand at all before God. And this, my friends, is the only way we can stand before the judge. The only way I can stand before the judge is not because I was a minister. Not because I gave myself to the ministry. The only way I can stand before a judge is because I stand in Jesus' righteousness. I don't have the righteousness inherently within myself. And there's no way I can do enough good works in the future to make up for my past. I blew it long, long, long time ago. I don't know when my first conscious sin was, but... Even before that, I was a sinner. The moment I was conceived, David said in Psalm 51, Behold, I was conceived in sin. My only hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so I cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner, like the publican in the temple. Jesus said, that's the man who went home justified, not the Pharisee who stood before the Lord and praised himself before the Lord and who praised his works before the Lord. I tithe. I, I, you know, I, I fast twice a week. Now, these are all commendable things. Jesus' point was not to condemn what he was doing, but that he was trusting in those works as the reason he is righteous. And that's not sufficient righteousness. God looks at that and he says, I don't see righteousness, I see filthy rags. I see somebody trusting in himself. I see somebody relying on himself. I'm looking for people who rely on Christ. I'm looking for somebody who relies on the Savior. And it's that poor publican in the back corner beating his breast, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Trusting not in himself, but trusting and pleading in Jesus Christ, if I can only touch the hem of his garment. If you will just say the word, Lord, I'll believe, said the centurion. That's, that, that's, that's the, the moments of, that you see faith in the Gospels. Isn't it interesting, too? You often saw it not in the religious people. You saw it in, in the Gentiles. The Syrophoenician woman, the centurion, the Roman. Now we saw it with the ten lepers, right? Who, who comes back? The Samaritan comes back. The woman at the well. All these Gentiles. 
because the law was a stumbling block for the Jews. They were trusting in the law for their own righteousness. And because they were doing that, they did not understand the gospel and they were stumbling over it. The righteousness of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a stumbling stone to the Jew and it is foolishness by nature to the Gentile. So if you want to stand on the day of judgment, you must stand in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus said it's going to be like a wedding party and the king gives this great wedding party for his son and he's, he's surveying all the attendees of the party and he looks out and he sees everybody in the wedding garden. Now you have to realize in their culture... If you went to a wedding, you were given a gift. You were given a, a, a garment to wear. Remember, you know, you can look at the book of Samson or, or the, the story of Samson in the book of Judges. Remember how Samson had to get that clothing, that wedding garments. And Well, anyway, so the king's looking out. He sees everybody's clothing in wedding garments except, whoa, how did you get in here? He sees a guy who has refused the free, gracious offer of a wedding garment who's in his own clothes who's rejected the king's free garment and he has that man tossed out. The only way you can stand before the judge is in the spotless, pure garments of Jesus Christ. You must put on Jesus. You must put on his garments. You must wear his robe and say, Lord, this is my righteousness. This is all I have to present to you. Your son's righteousness, your son's death, your son's resurrection, your son's ascension, your son's intercession for me. It's all of your son. It's everything he's done for me. It's nothing of myself. Now, either you will stand that way or you will stand the second way in your own righteousness. And you, like the Pharisee in the temple, will say, Lord, I did A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And I was better than these neighbors over here. Yeah, I'll acknowledge I wasn't a perfect person, but if you grade on the curve, I'm a lot better than the mass of humanity. And that will only get you perdition. There's no hope. Some people, their answer is this, I will get religious. And so they, they or I will take up spiritualism, nebulous spiritualism, new ageism, or I will become a spiritual person. This is what will save me. Or I, I will take up religion. Maybe they take up an idolatrous religion. Maybe they even join the church. Maybe they go to a true place of religion where the gospel is really preached and taught and adhered to, but they won't receive the gospel. And they try through their prayers and through their Bible reading. I was listening to a prominent teacher the other day and he was talking about his own conversion. And he said that, he, he said one of the things that before he was converted, he, uh, the resurrected Jesus, it didn't make much difference in his life whether Jesus was really raised or not because he said to him, Jesus was a good teacher that he was following. And so by reading the Bible and by praying his prayers, he was, quote, being a good Christian. This is what his understanding of being a good Christian was. And unfortunately, a lot of people think that way. But he was convicted at one point while reading his Bible. He came across the words of Jesus and they said this. You search the scriptures. They speak of me. And he realized at that moment that all his Bible reading, he was doing for himself, for his own righteousness. And here was a verse in that Bible that he was reading daily. And he realized that that which he was reading was speaking about Jesus and what he needed 
was not check marks next to his Bible readings, but he needed Jesus. And he realized it makes all the difference in the world whether Jesus is alive or dead. So if you are trusting in your works, your righteousness, flee from those works. It's sinking sand. Sinking sand. And when this storm of judgment comes upon humanity, and I know a lot of people are making fun of of it because of all the uproar over the the recent world is coming to an end stuff out there in the news. But, you know, one of the sad things I thought about that whole thing was, you know, Harold Camping is absolutely wrong to be predicting a date and to claim that this is the date and the time that Jesus is going to return. But, you know, the, the sad, one of the sad things, there's many sad things about this, but one of them is that you have this world that's mocking now. And the reality is that that, that day is coming. Now, it was not May 21st. And I suspect it will not be October 21st either. But it is coming. If not in our lifetime, it will come at some point in history. And even if it doesn't come in our lifetime, if he does not come while we are yet living, we will go to him. And either way, it will be a day of judgment. So we must be prepared. And the only way to prepare is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I close with this. Jesus Christ is a wonderful, gentle, gracious, merciful Savior. He wants you to come to him. He pleads with anyone here tonight who has never trusted from their heart, who has never believed, who who has never said, you know, my life is Jesus Christ. Who, Who has never come to the point, who has said, Jesus Christ is my Savior, Jesus Christ is my King, Jesus Christ is my Judge. And yet he says, come unto me, come unto me. What would keep you from having such a great Savior, such a great Lord? Such a great judge as Jesus Christ. I hope if you are near the kingdom, but you're not in the kingdom yet, that you will take what we've talked about tonight to heart and that you'll strive, even with violence, to enter the kingdom, to get it right. You give yourself no rest until you rest alone in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.